There is no way for this to be the song and not do this thing right here, right? Some of you get that, right? Oh, no, you, me, no? Okay, okay, all right, okay. Some of you are going to go Google that later and find out more about that. Uh, good morning, LifePoint. How are you all? Wonderful. So excited you guys are here as we're kicking off this new series. Uh, let me just mention, I don't own any uh, NFL or college football paraphernalia, and so the closest thing I have is a Navy shirt with white spots on it. It's kind of like Cowboys colors, so... Uh, will this do, or, or am I going to be okay here? Are we good on this Sunday morning? Okay, cool, all right. Some of you are Bears fans. You're like, why is it not re- uh, orange? Orange dots for the Bears. I apologize for all the Bears fans, brethren, in the room. Uh, yeah, okay, so we're kicking off a new series here called um, uh, Love Is. And let me just say this. Uh, I think we got a lot of LifePoint family members here, but it's, it's quite possible that you're here for the first time or maybe you're coming back. You've been once or twice, and this is kind of an irregular thing, and you're checking this out again. Maybe... You got uh, received a, a mailer in your mailbox, and that brought you here. Or maybe uh, you're someone who found one of our online web advertising clicks, or you know, a, a Facebook deal. Or maybe, maybe just maybe, a friend has decided to bring you here, and you're checking out church for the first time, trying to figure this all out. You know, figure all this. And, and I just want to say this: Welcome to our family. We're so glad you're here. Uh, we're, we're really going to try to take care of you here this morning. And, and here's, the, here's the deal. Our, our goal for you, for anyone who's here, for family, for first-time guests, for people who are checking it out, it, it's all the same. It's that you would walk away today um, better understanding and more impressed with and more adoring of who Jesus is. That's it. That's what we're all about. We're all about Jesus here. And so wherever you are with respect to Jesus, we want you to be maybe one step uh, moving forward with him a little bit more here today. And honestly, in our series, the way this is going to intersect with our series is uh, we're talking about love. And and the whole uh, objective of today's sermon, specifically as we kick off the series, is just to establish a working definition of what love is so that we're all kind of operating from the same point of reference. And let me set all this up maybe uh, by talking about uh, Google, I mentioned that earlier. I, I don't know if you're like me, uh, but uh, when, I don't know, maybe you are like me or maybe you're just about to laugh at me. And that's okay if you do laugh at me. But when, when I get bored or when I, there's just like one of those moments where like nothing's going on. It's rare these days. I have two kids at home, right? And so when my kids are asleep, maybe my wife is asleep and I'm up by myself. I'm like doing diapers or whatever I'm doing, right? And, and or honestly, I'm not doing diapers. I'm watching basketball. That's what's actually going on, right? So I'm doing that. And then I just get to this moment where I'm not thinking about anything. I get on Google and I just randomly search things that pop into my mind, right? Maybe not even randomly, maybe very intentionally. Maybe, maybe some of you are smiling. You're like, yeah, I know that, right? You pull out the smartphone or the tablet or the computer, right? And you just kind of Google search. You're like, hey, did Brian Adams write the theme song for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves or for the Three Musketeers? Oh, Brian Adams wrote both theme songs. That's awesome. Brian Adams is awesome. I wonder what his backstory is. So then you get on Wikipedia. And you're like, whoa, Brian Adams is Canadian. I didn't even know that, right? And you're like, oh, what other songs has he written? Wow, Brian Adams has written a lot of songs. Man, he just has this new album out called Bare Bones. It's actually two years old. It's just him, right? So you just, you just keep searching and you keep searching, right? I mean, you guys, I think y'all are with me. That's how Google works. It's the beauty of Google. It, it gives you just this access to all this information. Well, I set all that up to set this up to set up our morning to say, um, uh, the other day I was just kind of, you know, I was watching like a basketball game and I was just kind of like curious. And so I decided to search for, I wonder if plants can grow in space, right? I mean, you guys think about that too, right? You're like, huh, do plants grow in microgravity? Hmm, I'm just kind of curious about that. 
So I just typed that in, and really where I found out, I was like, man, I don't know if that's the best question to ask Google, because all the search results came up, and it was basically like, why are you asking me this question, Doug? Like, why are you thinking about this? This was Google's first response, right? So I just typed in there, why do, you know, are plants able to grow in the International Space Station? You know, we have like this International Space Station that's circling around Earth right now that astronauts go to. And I was just curious if somehow gravity or different layers of gravity affected plant growth. I don't know why. I was just really curious about this. And it turns out there's this Japanese uh, team of researchers, and they were, they were dedicated to this task. And so their report was online. You could read their report. And so I was like, this is fascinating. So I pulled up this Japanese kind of botany and biology cross-research report with all these astrophysicists and decided I was going to read it uh, because Google gave it to me. It is very interesting. Normally, so you guys know this, when plants grow on earth, uh, they grow in this way. You put the seed in the ground. So this is the ground area. You put the seeds in, and the roots grow down like this. And then the shoots or the sprouts, they sprout up kind of evenly like this because the, the sprouts move towards sunlight, the roots move towards the earth. And so when you see this row of seedlings that have been planted, it, as it starts to grow, it looks like this out of the soil, the soil layers right here. And so that's the picture they have in this report. Well, they then show, just to compare it in this report, the picture of the soil that they took to the International Space Station. Same seeds, same soil. They have just this little box of soil, and they put the seeds inside of it. And uh, they said, okay, we just want to test to see how it grows. So they water it, and they wait. Uh, and interestingly, so you see the root systems. The root systems actually grow sideways and kind of sometimes coming up, peeking through the soil and kind of in just really weird and erratic patterns. But here's the interesting, interesting thing here. The shoots or the sprouts, they grow up all mangled together. And the researchers were curious why this is, because on Earth it looks like this, in space it looks like this. And they're all like going sideways and all over the place. And one of the conclusions they came to is, hey, gravity does in some way affect the way seeds work, but that's not really the big thing. And the, the different layers of light probably affects that. The International Space Station, for example, sees the sunrise every 90 minutes or so. So just imagine that if you're in the International Space Station, you're like, it's another day. Oh, no, it's just been 90 minutes. Oh, wow. And so it just causes these weird things to go. But that's not it. That's not it. The researchers actually said this. Here's the conclusion of why seeds grow all mangled in weird directions. He says this, the, the main researcher. The seeds do not have a point of reference in the space station. On Earth, the seeds have a point of reference, and so they're able to grow in a normal, healthy way. But when you put a seed in the International Space Station in different gravitational kind of environment, the seeds have no point of reference, and so it hinders and affects their growth. And LifePoint, I want to begin there with that very vivid illustration to say this. In our 21st century climate and our culture today, especially as it relates to the issue of love, our culture is largely one that does not have a reference point. And so as it relates to love, the, our, our ideas of love are all over the place. We're just like seeds not being able to find any kind of clear definition on that, and it affects our growth as a culture, okay? The culture around us is without reference point, specifically on this issue of love. But here's the thing, for believers in Christ, we do have a reference point 
and our understanding of love is going to actually help us to grow in a healthy way. But you should understand, we're going to look different than the culture around us. Our culture is very confused today. And my concern here today is that we let culture, the cultural definitions of love, uh, seep into our definitions of love, and it hinders our growth. And here's what I mean by that. Let's just, let's just kind of think about this. Let's do a thought experiment together here. Think about all the times you use the word love in a sentence. Just think about it. Okay, you don't have to say it out loud. This is kind of a rhetorical exercise, but in your mind, just think about it. And probably, if you're thinking about it right now, you're thinking about it in one of kind of four ways. Like you might use uh, love in this sentence. Man, I just love my smartphone. Someone asked you, you got a new smartphone? Yeah, I just upgraded. What do you think about it? Oh, I love the new smartphone. And what do you mean when you use love in this way? You mean probably that the smartphone enhances your life. And so you're defining love as enhancement, okay? This smartphone enhances my life. I'm more effective, okay? So just imagine this alien comes down from another planet and is observing human language, and they hear you. The first time they hear the word love, their definition of love is, I love my smartphone. And they go, okay, love means it enhances your life, okay? And then the next thing they hear that comes out of your mouth is they're secretly stalking you, walking around because they're doing an observation on you know, human culture. They hear you say this, I love my spouse, and you're like, man, someone, someone's talking. You're like, hey, so what, you know, what are you doing for Valentine's Day? We've got this awesome date. It's going to be super romantic. I love my spouse. I'm just going to treat her. I'm going to treat him right. And it's just going to be amazing. And the alien goes, you want to enhance your spouse's life? Like, uh, so I'm, I'm confused. And here, at this point, when you use the term love, you mean romantic love. I have this loving commitment, this feeling that kind of goes towards my spouse, and then in another uh, example, you might say something like this, I love my family, I love my children, I love my parents. And in this way, you don't mean you enhance them and you're not romantic towards them. You're just saying, I have a general kind of brotherly, familial affection towards them. So we've got these three different uh, versions of the word love without a reference point. Maybe a fourth one that you're thinking about today is this. You walk out of a movie theater and someone says, what'd you think of the new Star Wars film? And you go, oh, I loved it, right? And you don't mean you're romantic towards the film, because that would just be creepy. And you don't mean that it enhanced your life. And you don't mean that you have a familial kind of affection towards them. You just mean you enjoyed it. You're using love as kind of this superlative in your world. I really, really enjoyed this film. Look, we, we have four different types of love that, that's just for starters in terms of how we use love. And they all lack some kind of reference point to help bring them all together here today. And if we're not care careful in this culture, we're going to continue to define love without a reference point, And it's just going to be all over the place. And what's at stake here is our growth and our development. And so LifePoint, what I want us to do today is just to look to God's word as our reference point And to begin to define love the way God defines love. Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. If we will begin to define love the way God defines love, it will permit us to grow in the healthiest and the most optimal way that he designed us to grow. It'll result in better lives. It'll result in better marriages. It'll result in better relationships. It'll result in a better career. It'll result in a higher character life. So that's what I want us to do today. It's our entire task of this morning as we set up the series. And as we get going, I want to invite you to pray with me. Jesus, uh, I thank you that um, you've given us a clear reference point uh, on all things, but specifically on this issue of love. And so as we 
jump into this topic of defining the word love biblically, uh, I, I pray that you would keep us from becoming like the seeds on the space station that grow all mangled together, and you'd instead make us into the type of seeds that are on earth that grow in a normal and healthy way for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, if you have bulletins, you can open them. I'm not specifically going to jump into one text today, which is kind of my pattern here, but we're going to look at just kind of a flyover, specifically of the New Testament, of what the New Testament says about love. Uh, and so if you have bulletins, I encourage you to look at them. If you're not a filler-outer of bulletins, which is the official term, I want to encourage you to maybe think about just making mental note or you know, taking notes on your phone or something, because we're just going to jump in and move pretty quickly here. But here's the first big verse I want us to understand. Again, with a goal of trying to define what love is, the first verse is in 1 John 4, 19. John, remember, is Jesus' beloved disciple. And so he was like in Jesus's crew. He knew Jesus very well. So when he speaks on this issue, he's in a sense speaking as to what Jesus would have said. And by the way, Jesus is God. So here we go. Uh, number one, we love because he, being God, first loved us. And the companion truth statement with that that you might want to fill in is this. As human beings, we only know about love because God revealed love to us. As human beings, we only know about love because God first revealed it to us. Let me give you a kind of an illustration to kind of help bolster this first kind of true statement here. Um, and that is this. Uh, if, if you know anything about the game of basketball, you know that it was invented by a guy named Dr. Naismith in Kansas. And now I, I risk, you know, all of our University of Kansas fans uh, are just going to go crazy here and I talk about this. But um, he invented the game uh, and, and he taught people how to play it. And so... Uh, what happened uh, really in the last couple of weeks at a, a Kansas University basketball game is they took Dr. Naismith's original rules he wrote the, on the game of basketball. It's been stored in archives, and they brought, the University of Kansas purchased it, or actually it was donated, and uh, they revealed it at halftime of a Kansas University basketball game. And everybody went crazy, and it was just, you know, this is cool moment, whatever. And, and here's basically what this was signifying here. What was signifying, in Can at least in the University of Kansas's mind, is... Um, uh, or Kansas University's mind, is, uh, hey, uh, we are the embodiment of basketball, and we now have the holy grail, like the revealed truth of basketball in our possession, and they just kind of went, you know, just bananas there, and, you know, again, it was a great moment. But he here's where I think this is a good illustration for what we're talking about here. Um, basketball didn't exist before Dr. Naismith. Just think about that. It wasn't like there were people who were playing a pre-form of basketball somewhere and Dr. Naismith just went, oh, yeah, let me collect this. No, no, no. Basketball, just the idea of basketball as a sport, it originated in the mind of Dr. Naismith. And we wouldn't have known about basketball. There would be no Kansas Rock Chalk Jayhawk basketball or Baylor Bear basketball or Dallas Mavericks basketball or whatever your affiliation is. There would be none of that if it wasn't for Dr. Naismith. It originated in his mind, and then he had to reveal it to people and teach them how to play it. And then people began to play it and play it better and better and better, and they moved forward. But again, without Dr. Naismith, there would be no basketball. Right? That's the reality. At a much broader level, we can say the same thing about love. If it wasn't for God, there would be no love. Love originated in God's mind. And then he demonstrated to human beings how we should love one another. He is the source and origin of all love. And so if we're going to try to work, get at a working definition of love, we have to understand that God's the source of love. So he gets to tell us what love is. He gets to be our, our reference point. 
Because that's the first big truth I want you guys to understand. So as human beings, we only know about love because God revealed it to us. Second verse I want you to look at is in 1 John. Again, we're staying in 1 John 4, 8, just earlier in this passage. And he writes this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Now, it's very important. John doesn't say love is God, meaning he's not saying we start with our understanding of love and then we move backwards and we define God based on who our understanding of love is. No, he's saying we have to first understand God, and then once we understand that, then we get to define what love is. And the big truth statement we have here is this. As Christians, we define love based on who God is. As Christians, we define love based on who God is. Now, let me just say this. Um, the tendency, again, is to think about what we believe about love. You know, I love my iPod or I love my you know, iPhone. And then we just kind of amplify that and we go, the amplification of our love is God, right? So this love I have for my iPhone, just a really big version of that is, is what God is. And we're not, this is not what this verse is saying. And so maybe if you want to write down something that's not in your notes, but if you just want to write this phrase, this could be helpful for you in your life. Uh, God is not the amplification of our earthly love. God is the perfection of the idea of love. God is not the amplification of our earthly love. God is the perfection of the idea of love. Meaning, however we conceive of love, even our most clear, you know, sanest moments, God's not the amplification of that. He's the perfection. And we're never even going to understand it perfectly until we're with him in heaven. But he is that source, that origin. He's the one who defines who love is. So we love because God first loved us. Number two, God is love. Number three, this comes from Paul in Ephesians 5. And we looked at this last year about the same time. And Paul writes this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Okay? And the companion statements there, there are two of them that I want you to write in, maybe fill in the blank here. Number one, we are called to imitate God specifically in the way that we love. So our manner of demonstrating love should, should be defined uh, by or an imitation of who God is. So we are called to imitate God specifically in the way we love. And the way that God demonstrates love is by giving of himself. That's what Paul writes, that Jesus, uh, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And these three things, when you put them together, that God is love, that he revealed love to us, and that the way he demonstrated love was by giving of himself, it leads us to our definition, our working definition. I want us to just own and lock in on here today and carry with us into each subsequent sermon in the series. And it's important because everything we do is going to be an application or kind of a redirection of this same topic. We're going to just try to apply it to every area of life. So George is going to come next week and preach about love uh, being assuring, and he's going to do so with an understanding of this definition here in mind. And so here's the definition I want us to kind of think through here, okay? is this, love is an opportunity for Christians to imitate God by giving of themselves, especially when it's inconvenient. Love is an opportunity for Christians to imitate God by giving of themselves, especially when it's inconvenient. Now, I want to unpack that a little bit, and I want to really just kind of think through and just spend the next, I don't know, 10 minutes or so really kind of driving that definition down deep. Uh, and I'm going to do so uh, by uh, talking to you guys from what I call the gospel according to solo cups, okay? 
Now, without, without a doubt, I will not mention any names, but without a doubt, when I showed every, you know, I walk in with this, everybody, and I mean to a person, everybody's first statement was, are you playing beer pong? Now, these are Christians, mind you, I just want to say. Now, as, as a Christian, I don't know what beer pong is, so I had to get on Google and look that up. No. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not, no, there's no beer pong. This is, this is the gospel according to Solo Cup. So let me just explain. And we're going to explain, this is still in your bulletin. So each one of these, I'm going to show you with the, the Solo Cups here and the hose here. And I want to talk about the gospel of God's giving love. Again, if, if we're going to define love, we have to define it the way God does, which is giving of ourselves, especially when it's inconvenient. That's what love is. It's giving of yourself. It's just giving and emptying and emptying yourself and especially when it's inconvenient. In fact, inconvenience might be the key that that's an opportunity that we're supposed to demonstrate love. And so let's talk about this just kind of from a gospel perspective. And so you see down here on your bulletin, the gospel of God's giving love. First kind of point of the gospel that we need to understand is this. God is the only being in existence who does not need anything. He's the only being in existence who doesn't need anything. So think about that. God exists Wherever he exists in the heavens, the Bible describes, he doesn't need anything. Like, what would that be like for you to not need anything? Okay, it's like he doesn't need money. He doesn't need a house. He doesn't need stuff. He just doesn't need anything. He is the source of all things. He created the universe. So the universe needs God to exist. God doesn't need the universe to exist. He doesn't need anything. And so the, the illustration I have on that is I have this water hose here. You can imagine it's hooked up to like a, a spigot and we can get past water bills and the way that, you know, the political economy of the water system works, any of that kind of stuff. And just kind of at a very simple level, just imagine this is hooked up to a wall and it's turned on. If I turn on the water hose, what comes out of here? Water. Does it ever stop flowing? If any of you have kids who accidentally left the water going and it just kept going all night and you got a really big water bill the next month. At any point, did the water just suddenly turn off? Like, oh, we saw that too much water was coming out and it just kind of turned off. No, if you, if you unhook, you know, unturn it right there, it's just the water's going to flow and flow and flow and flow and flow. And that's a good way of thinking about God, okay? He doesn't need anything. He's the source. He's, he's just, there's this giving of himself just flowing all the time. And that's the second kind of point here. God is uniquely set up to give and give and give and give, and this is at the heart of the gospel. Because he doesn't need anything, this is what God does. He just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives, and you're like, God, are you done giving? He's like, no, I don't need anything. So literally all I have to do with my time and create a time is just give and 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 give. Now let me be very clear here. This, is, this does not mean giving financially or in kind of a prosperity gospel kind of way. I'm not gonna go that route. I don't think that's a helpful way to go. But what, all I'm saying is in general, what God does is he gives and gives and gives. And when you become, when you come into a relationship with God, we, we sang this song earlier, he's a good, good father. That's who he is. And we're loved by him. That's who we are because this is our relationship with God. He gives love, he gives love, he gives love. We receive it, we receive it, we receive it. And that's just what he does. It's not conditional. It's not based on anything we do. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. He's the only being in the universe who doesn't need anything. He has nothing else to do. He's, he's just giving. So God's giving and giving and giving. The third point, as Christians, this unique ability to give and give, it frees us up to give and give and give knowing that God will give and give and give and give to fill us back up. 
That's the beautiful thing. And that's what, that's what this demonstrates here, okay? So I want you to imagine this, this solo cup on top. This is, this is you, okay? And then these solo cups down here, these are, you know, the people around you in your community. Maybe this is your life group, or this is your family, or this is just friends you have, specifically some other Christian friends, and maybe sometimes not some Christian friends. But, but this is how this relationships work, right? So the great commandment, this guy comes to Jesus in, in the Gospels, and he says, uh, you know, what is the greatest commandment, singular? What is the greatest commandment? Not, nope, right? commandment. And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. He gives them two aspects. Those are not two different commandments. They're the same commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. And so this is the paradigm that we exist in. So God comes over here and he gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. And what happens if, you know, theoretically here, I just pour water into this cup and just keep pouring? What's gonna happen? It's gonna overflow, right? And so what this represents here is as God gives and gives and gives and gives and gives to us, it overflows and out of the overflow of the abundant life that God gives to us, we spill into others around us in our community. And this is Christian love for one another, right? Out of the overflow of our life, we naturally spill into others. We give out of the abundance of God's love for us. So that's the model. But here's the problem again. Many of us, especially as we grew up in an American culture which is highly individualistic, we get away from this model and thinking about this, and instead, we get into a model of thinking like this, okay? We do two things. Number one, we remove ourselves, we isolate ourselves from community. We have 30-minute uh, commutes to work. We have rear-entry houses. Man, we're just so busy. We just need time for me to power down, right? We, we just um, isolate ourselves and individualize and all that. And then the second thing we do is this. God fills us up and fills us up and fills us up, and we're like, Oh, it's too much, it's too much, it's too much. No, no, God, I got it from here, I got it from here. I'm full, I'm full, no more. It was spilling over, I'm overwhelmed by you. No, 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 it's a little too much. I got my cup, I'm good. Why don't you just, why don't you just kind of go off over there? I went to church today, I got filled up, I'm good. So I'm good for a while. I'm just, it's me and the solo cup, we're fine. And then what happens after a while? The water level goes, ooh, until we're empty. You know, the number one thing that pastors say when I talk to pastor's friends about people who come to us for need of counseling, it, number one, it's always an emergency situation. Number two, when they come in, the first thing they generally say is this, I just feel so empty inside. I'm just so drained. It's like I just, I just, it's like I just feel like God's so far away from me. I just feel so empty and isolated and I, I really need help. Well, what, what, what do we know that's happened? You've done two things. You've removed yourself from Christian community. And then when God was filling you up as he normally does, you're like, no, no, no. I got this, God. I got this. I got this. I got this. But now you're empty. And three things happen here. Three things are dangerous to us uh, as it relates to the gospel of God's giving love. And there are three E's. You might want to write these down. Number one is it's the danger of uh, exclusive uh, exclusive loving or exclusive giving. It's the danger, maybe you could say, of ex, uh, exclusivity. So exclusivity, these are all E's, right? And that's this. It says, I would really like in the ideal to go give to other people, okay? But I'm really afraid if I give to that person, it's gonna drain me. And then 
I don't know how I'll fill back up. So uh, you may know this, maybe you're in a life group, maybe I'm letting a cat out of the bag here, maybe you're, you've done ministry before, maybe you've kind of helped out or something. You, there's this phrase that sometimes people use, I'm not saying we use this, I will, I will deny this in a, in a public setting, right? Uh, but I'm just saying it's possible that people use this phrase, they say, there are people out there that are extra grace required. Do you know anybody like that? Extra grace required, right? And here's what this means, that's a person who just has this deep need to be filled up. They're just super needy. We describe people as that all the time, right? Oh, man, I don't wanna spend any more time around that guy because he's so needy, right? And what we're saying is, I'm afraid if I spend time, I'm gonna pour into that guy, I'm gonna pour into that guy, and he's, I'm gonna be just exhausted by the very end. I'm gonna be empty, I'm gonna feel empty inside, and that guy's still gonna be needy. I'm gonna be like, oh my goodness, I don't know how I can possibly spend more time with that guy, minister to that guy. But if the gospel is true, and if this is really what is the reality, this is our reference point here, we know two things to be true. Number one, guess what? All of us are needy, right? We all are born with a God-sized hole in our lives, and we can't do this on our own. We need the God who gives and gives and gives and gives to fill us up. And so when we're around people who are extra grace required, guess what? We're all extra grace required. We're all needy, right? We all are in need of God to fill us up. We can't do this on our own. And so when I hear people say that, when they say, oh, I can't minister to that person because they're so needy, this is what it tells me. You must be ministering out of isolation and not in community, because if you were in community, you would know two things are happening. Number one, God's filling you up. But number two, if for whatever reason God's not filling you up, he's filling your community up and your community is pouring into you. That's how community is supposed to work. And so there's a lie out there that says, hey, you need to get filled up first before you go fill up around other people. And to some extent that's true, but to some extent that's just a lie. No, you need to be in an abundant relationship with God. And guess what God's going to do? He's going to give and give and give till you're overflowing. And then you're going to be like, what do you want me to do with all this? And he's going to be like, I want you to get in community. So you can just help give and give and give to other people of the abundance of your life. So number one, there's a lie here. It's the lie of exclusivity. It's a danger. Number two, there's another one. It's the danger of exchange. The danger of exchange. When you think about loving other people, you think like this sometimes, right? Again, especially if you're thinking as an individual, you go, I really want to love this person. And I, I'm happy to give of myself, but what am I going to get in exchange, Right? Uh, nowhere is this more evident if you're like walking down the street, probably not here, but maybe in maybe an urban setting, and there's perhaps a homeless gentleman who's on the side of the road, maybe with a cardboard sign that says, we'll fight ninjas for food or something like that, right? This is what homeless people are wearing. You guys didn't get that joke, but I'll just keep going, right? So homeless person's there, maybe looks like me with the beard. It might be me. You never know. Uh, and, and he's just, you know, holding the sign. And this thought's in your mind. Like the first thought is lock the door, roll up the window so he doesn't come by and talk to me. The second thought is, um, okay, let me think about this. What if I was to give this person money? I think, I would, I think I'd probably wanna go up and have this conversation. Uh, sir, I'm happy to give you money, but in exchange for this, I need you to promise me that you are not gonna spend this on drugs or other things that are gonna keep you uh, continuing in this downward economic spiral. Um, and, you know, like, I'm probably gonna need to follow up with you just to make sure we're all okay, right? And you think this is the loving thing to do, right? You've gotta give with an idea of exchange in mind. But here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, if I give to this person, I, in a sense, I want something back. I want affirmation that I did a good thing. I, I need something back from you. And so you're expecting this person you're supposed to be loving and giving to to fill you up. 
But if the gospel is true and if our reference point is true, guess what? You don't need that person to fill you back up. You got God. This is what he does. He doesn't, literally doesn't do anything else but give and give and give and give to us. So guess what? You're now freed up to give without an ex expectation of exchange. You're like, hey, you need money? Here. I really hope you don't spend it on drugs. I hope you spend it on helping yourself out. But if you don't, well, that's between you and God. I don't need that money. Why? I got God and he gives and gives. I'll be okay, okay? I'll be okay because God gives and gives and gives. He's a good, good father. And so the gospel undermines this idea of exchange and undermines this idea of exclusivity. And finally, it undermines uh, the, the lie of earning or the danger of earning. And I was talking with someone this week, uh, and they, they just put it really beautifully. I asked this person in our church if I could say this. They came into my office, and they said this. They said, um, I, I feel bad praying about this particular thing in my life. I feel really bad because... I feel like I'm not good enough to ask God to take care of this, right? I wanna pray about A, but I don't feel like I'm in a really good spot to pray about A because I'm not good enough. And so I, I, just, I just have stayed away from praying about it. And I knew my life group would hold me accountable to this decision I needed to make. And so I stayed away from them. And here's what they basically said. I could be here in this kind of thing, asking God who gives and gives and gives, but instead I've bought into the lie of Satan and I've now isolated myself from my community and I've isolated myself from God. And now I'm here and I'm empty and I know I need to be filled up. And so what I'm doing is I'm going to God going, hey, wait a second, God, listen, before I, before I come near you, let me, just, let me just see if I can earn my way into your favor, into your grace. But here's the problem with earning. It doesn't uh, understand the basic truth that God doesn't need anything. And so we're never in a position to try to earn something from him. Why? He's the origin of everything. He gives and gives and gives. And gives. We don't ever have to, oh, I'm empty, God. Do you think you could? No, no, you just go to God. You just go to God, right? Life point, you just go to God. He gives and gives and gives and gives. That's what he does. He's a good, good father who loves us lavishly. We don't have to earn our way to it because we could never be good enough to deserve what he does. And furthermore, he doesn't operate on a merit-based system. He doesn't need anything. He gives and gives and gives and gives. And so the gospel, this definition of love we get from the gospel undermines the, the, the view of exclusivity, the lie of exchange, and the lie of earning. So let's, life point, let's just come back and kind of settle in on that definition. Let me tell a story, and let me give you a test, and I'll get you all out of here so you can go watch the Super Bowl. The definition is this. Love is an opportunity for Christians to imitate God by giving of themselves, especially when it's inconvenient. Yes, it's inconvenient. It's always gonna be inconvenient because people are always needy. But you know what? I've got a God who's gonna fill me up. And so I am now free to give and give and give and give. So one of the things, George and I were talking about this this week and he brought this really good point. In fact, George and I shot about a 25 minute podcast that's gonna be coming up uh, available for you guys to stream later on. We just had this free flowing exchange. And George brought this really great point. He said, you know what, Doug? If you look at the crucifixion, it's this really beautiful picture of this loving, giving kind of scenario here. He said, think about it from if you put all the gospels together, Jesus is dying on the cross. And if there's any moment where anyone has any excuse to just say, listen, this is not a convenient time, right? It's Jesus dying on the cross, right? If Jesus was just like, 
hey guys, this is, this is really painful. I'm dying. I'm asphyxiating here. This may not be a convenient time for me to love right now. Who among us would be like, oh, Jesus, you're being a jerk, right? I need your love. No, we would be like, Jesus, totally get it. You're dying on the cross. Understood. Not a good time. I'll come back later, right? But here's what Jesus does. In one gospel, he turns to the thief on the cross while he's dying and says, on this day, you'll be with me in paradise. He loves the thief on the cross while he's dying. In another gospel account, he looks at his mother and he says, mom, I know you're gonna be heartbroken that I'm going from you, but look, here are the disciples, these are your brothers. He's caring for his mom while he's dying on the cross. People are insulting him and they're shouting things at him. And at one moment, he could, again, we would we'd have no problem with Jesus if he was just like, God, this is really painful. Could you speed up the process of death here and kind of go home? But instead, here's what he does. He gives of himself. He looks at the people and he says, um, he says, you guys don't know what you're doing. And he turns to God and says, Father, please forgive them. They know not what they do. On the cross, we see this beautiful definition of love at play. Jesus gives and gives and gives of himself while he's dying in an incredibly inconvenient time. How could he do that? Is he somehow superhuman or something? I mean, he's fully human. He's fully God. No, here's the thing. Jesus rightly understood that God's a good, good father. And he gives and gives and gives. So he could afford to forgive people. He could afford to care for his mother. He could afford uh, to love the thief on the cross and forgive the thief on the cross because he knew his father would fill him back up because that's what God does. So life point, what I want you to think about this week and meditate on is this definition, that love, biblical love, is giving of yourself, especially when it's inconvenient. And you can afford to do that because you have a father who will fill you back up. Here's a test I want to give you this week, just really quickly. As you're having a quiet time, uh, on the screen, it's going to come up. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Now, we, we tend to read this when we're at weddings. We're like, oh, it's the love chapter. That's really nice. But really, we could say this is the giving chapter because that, that might be a better definition here. And here's what I want you to do as you go. Maybe you take the bulletin. You read this this week. Every time you see the word love, again, at a quiet time type scenario, every time you see the word love or a word that's referring to love like it, I want you to replace that with your name. And ask yourself the question. So like, for example, on, on here it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends or love is never ending. Now what happens if I put someone's name in here, Okay. Is Chris patient and kind? Is Bryce, uh, does Bryce not envy or boast? Is Doug not arrogant or rude? Does Doug not insist on his own way? You gotta ask all those questions. Just put your name in there. And maybe you're someone who says this, okay, is Doug patient, is Doug kind? No, I'm not very patient. I haven't been very patient this week. Ask yourself the follow-up question. If I'm someone who is not becoming increasingly more and more patient, giving of my patience, giving of my time and myself to others, especially when it's inconvenient in the form of patience, is it because I don't really trust that God is who he says he is, okay? With each of these, if I'm not kind, if I don't feel like extending kindness to somebody, is it possible that I don't believe that God will really fill me back up? If uh, I'm arrogant or rude to people and dismissive. Is it because I don't believe that God is the God who gives and gives and gives and gives? That's your challenge this week.
Again, life point. Our whole goal today is to make sure we understand how the Bible defines love and to get that reference point out there and to meditate on this because we're going to apply it in each subsequent week of the series. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray, and I'm going to set up the offering time, uh, and we'll kind of wrap things up. So would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that uh, even up to the cross, you are someone who demonstrated uh, love and giving. And so I ask that you would uh, teach us now about love and giving uh, and about uh, what it means for us to be the kind of people who naturally and supernaturally uh, love in the way that Jesus and the way that God loves. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, our usher.